Hey, this is Scott Taylor. I am so glad that you have joined us. I'm the pastor of Turning Point Church, and we would love to connect with you. You can connect with us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at TPCGVL, or you could text the word CONNECT to 864-479-4483. We've got a word for you today that I hope challenges you and inspires you. wonderful, wasn't it? That's good stuff. Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that were here, uh, that were not here last week, let me introduce myself. My name is Chris Criswell. I'm one of the associate pastors at Praise Cathedral up in Greer, or if you're from there, in Greer. And uh, so it's a joy to be here with you this morning. For those of you that were here last week, howdy. It's good to be back with y'all. Um, I got a little bit later start this morning. Last week I talked about getting on 85 and I felt like I had the highway to myself. It was nice and relaxing. 15 minutes makes all the difference in the world, just so you know, on 85. Uh, I was not by myself this morning and uh, many people made their presence known to me on the highway. So thank the Lord for that. Um, let's see how I do on probation this week. I feel like there was a challenge given there, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, I want to kind of jump in, if you will, to James chapter 1 again. Last week, we talked about the first five verses, five or six verses. Uh, and this is kind of a continuation on from that, if you will. But the, the topic shifts a little bit. And I want to talk to us about how we grow and how we mature. And one of the areas that we mature is how we deal with sin. That fun three-letter word. Amen? Good times. So if you're in James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 13 through 15. And James teaches us, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So that's actually a mouthful right there for a couple of verses, and I'm going to do this week a little bit different, if that's okay. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching, and then we'll do a little bit of preaching, and hopefully the Lord will be edified through what is said this morning. As James starts us off here in verse 13, he reminds us that temptation does not come from God. Now last week we talked a little bit about the difference between testing and tempting, right? We know that God will test us in order to bring the best out of us. The enemy, however, will tempt us with the purpose of pulling the worst out of us. Does that make sense? And so what we see here is that James is beginning to deal with the folks spread out across uh, all of Greece, if you will, the Roman Empire, is that people back then kind of act similar in the way that we act now. There's, there's two circumstances going on with folks. Whenever they, when they face a temptation, they don't like it, and their first response is to blame God. Why is God tempting me? Why is he trying me right here? Oh, the Lord is trying to get at me here. And part of that comes from a polytheistic religion kind of thing that they had. And a lot of religions at that time had what was referred to as a trickster god. 
If you're familiar with the Marvel superheroes, they have Loki, who's the god of mischief, if you will. But there's always something about one of their gods, one of the pantheon, if you will, that always tried to trick human beings. And sometimes it was difficult for folks not to put that on the God of the Bible. The Lord is tempting me. Some, however, would take a little bit different approach and say, well, since God put this in front of me, he must want me to enjoy it. (laughs) Why else would he be tempting me? Sometimes we kind of change that around here today when we do something that we're not supposed to do. And especially as children, sometimes in the church that I grew up in, we would say, well, the devil made me do it. We're not... We're not the best at taking responsibility for our stuff, right? But instead of blaming the devil, sometimes we blame, well, God, you know, if he didn't want me to do it, he wouldn't put it there in front of me, right? And so James is dealing with some of this, and he's saying, look, some of y'all are declaring that God is tempting you. He does not tempt. He doesn't tempt, nor is he tempted by evil. As a matter of fact, Paul will deal in 1 Corinthians about this very thing. He'll talk about when we're tempted. He says, God will not tempt you beyond what you can stand, right? He adds this nice little caveat there at the end. It's very important, and it's so important that sometimes we ignore it. He says, when you're tempted, the Lord won't allow you to be tempted more than you can stand, and he will provide a way of escape. And what he's saying is, whenever you come into a place of temptation, the Lord will come in and he will provide a way for you to get out. We see the best example of this with Jesus in the wilderness. His response is always with the word because he's in the word and he knows what the word said. And even though the enemy tries to twist the word, he knows it and will not allow the enemy to get away with that. The problem that I found in my life, and I won't put this on y'all because I know that y'all are way more holy than I am. Trust me, if you knew me sometimes, things are going in my head. But sometimes I come to a place where I experience a temptation And the Lord gives me a way out. I just don't want to take it. Anybody ever been there before? Because I get in this place where I want what I want and I don't care about the consequences. When I get to that place where I want this and the Lord says, "Uh, uh, here's this back, here's this way out. I'm like, no, I'm good. (laughs) I got this right. And that is where we get into trouble. James here talks about, in verse 14, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. James is what we refer to as a Torah-observant Jew. He grew up in the same house Jesus grew up in. They followed the Old Testament. They followed the law. He went through the education system that Jesus went through. He was taught these things. And in Jewish teaching, there is a teaching on a Hebrew word called yetzer. Now, the first time I brought this word up to people, they thought I was saying, yes, sir. It is not yes, sir. It is yet, sir. <laughs> it's the Hebrew word for desire. It's actually the definition is the impulse or inclination with which humans are endowed according to Jewish traditional belief. Right? Desire, sometimes, as they would teach it, Sometimes desire is just neutral. It is what it is. What happens is, is when we take that desire and we try to fulfill that desire outside the will of God, that's where we get into trouble. And so they came up with these two different types of yetzers that they would teach. 
The first one is Yetzer Hara, which is the inclination to do evil by violating the will of God. We might refer to that today as our sin nature, if you will. It's that inclination to do things the wrong way. I don't know why it is. I was a children's pastor for 10 years. This is a very heavy inclination for certain children that if they can do it outside the bounds, that's what they want to do. That's the only thing they want to do, right? Which is not me at all, right? We don't ever do that as adults, right? But we get to pick on them because they don't get to say much back to us. But the Jewish teaching goes on and says that there's a yetzer hatav. And this is the inclination to do good by keeping the will of God. The, the place that we get into to trouble, right, is that they say a desire pops up and what you do with that desire makes a big deal, makes a big difference. This is actually based on Genesis, the Genesis account, before the flood, when the Lord looked at the thoughts and the inclinations of the people and saw that they were always bent towards the wicked. And then he brought about the flood to destroy it. And so they began to develop this teaching about where are our desires and how do they lean. Now again, James talks about we are led away by our own evil desires, if you will. Because there's this little word there that comes right after it called enticed. Now we know what enticed is, right? When you want somebody to take notice of something, we try to make it enticing. The base of this word has more to do with a baited hook, if you will. You know, when you go, if we have any fishermen here today, you know that if you just throw, fish aren't the smartest animals on the planet, but if you just throw a hook out there, you're not going to get a bite. What fish in the right mind is going to bite a hook? But you put a worm or you put some sort of a bait on there and it entices the fish and it hides the hook. That's where we get in the Jewish teaching here, this uh, Yetzer Hara. He says there's a hook that the enemy tries to get us with, but he baits it. And when we take that bait, he says we're enticed. He says, almost like he said, I like the imagery he gives us here. We are dragged away now by this desire. And the question has to pop up. And this is a question I think that we each have to ask and answer, and we need to ask and answer ourselves this almost every day. Are my desires my servant or are they my master? I had a conversation with a family member years ago, and I'm going to tell you this. I'm, I'm going to use as general language as I can. I don't want it to get too risque. But it blew my mind. We were talking about pornography addiction. A lot of guys deal with pornography sometimes. And I talked to him about how God can free folks from porno, porno, pornographic images and the desire to do that. Well, not maybe not the desire, but break the hold it has on them. And he looks at me and he says, well, that's good and all, but what if you really, really like it? What do you do then? And I said, well, according to the Word of God, we still shouldn't look at those things, right? And he, he wants to set you free from those. And he goes, well, no, 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 wait, you're not getting what I'm saying. What if you really, really, really like those things? And I said, it doesn't really, really, really matter. It still violates the law of God. And he comes back again and doubles the reallys. What if you really, 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 really like it, right? Like, like if I just, and, and so, I, so I said to him, I was like, do you think that, we don't have those same desires. 
Do you think that you just have some sort of exponential like of this that nobody else has to deal with? Because I'll tell you what, brother, this desire that you have no longer serves you. You serve it. And I was blown away because he just couldn't grasp the idea of saying no to a desire or trying to fulfill that desire in a godly way. There's a great example of this uh, in the story of David and Bathsheba. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the story in the Old Testament. David is at home when he should be out at war, and he's up on his rooftop, and he looks over, and he sees Bathsheba having a bath, and he's enticed. Sends men to get her, brings her into his house, has her spend the night, sends her home. She, comes, she sends word, hey, I'm pregnant. Sends for her husband to come back, hoping to get him to go, to kind of put the pregnancy off on him. He won't do it. He's an honorable man. So he sends him back with orders to the commander to have him killed. And sure enough, he's killed. And after the appropriate amount of time and mourning is done, he brings Bathsheba in and makes her his wife and pretends that the pregnancy is legitimate. And he thinks he's got away with it until Nathan the prophet comes and says, David, let me tell you a story. In town, there's a rich man who has many sheep, many herds. And down the street, there's a man that only has one little ewe lamb. Now, let me tell you about this one little ewe lamb. This fella loves this ewe lamb so much, he lets this lamb eat from his table, sleep in his bed, and he treats this lamb like it's his daughter. And one day, a traveler comes by the rich man's house, knocking on the door, and in Jewish uh, culture, it's their custom that if a traveler were to come, you're supposed to be hospitable to them and provide them something to eat. But instead of taking from his own herds, Nathan says, he goes and takes the poor man's one little ewe lamb and kills it, slaughters it, and serves it to the traveler. And he knows he's got David because David grew up as a shepherd, knows what it is to care for and to love that sheep. And just as expected, David comes off that throne mad, says he's going to pay it back four times, and then that man's going to have to answer to me. I'm going to deal with this myself. And Nathan points the finger at him and says, you're the man. That's the thing that you did. And immediately David knew he was caught. And what happened is, is Nathan is illustrating to him exactly what happened. David, you went up on that roof and you saw something you probably shouldn't have seen. And let me say this. You can't go out into this world and not see things that you're not supposed to see. You're not going to be able to be online. You're not going to be able to have conversations or live in this world without things popping up that you should not hear, that you should not hear, probably that you don't want to think, but they're there and there's people trying to push them out in front of you to get your attention, right? And so the Lord doesn't fault us for those things popping up. It's what you do with those thoughts, right? It's what you do with those desires. David had so many wives that he could have taken this desire to, but he didn't. And Nathan is in, in his illustration is very clear. We see the rich man with many flocks, that's David and his many wives. We see the poor man and his one little ewe lamb, that's Uriah and Bathsheba. But the question has to be asked, who's the traveler? And I would propose to you this morning that that traveler was a desire. It was a desire. It was a thought that come knocking on his door. And the Jewish teaching here about desire is that when that thing comes up, what do you do with that desire? Do you fulfill it as the Hatav Yetzer teaches us, that we fulfill it within the boundaries God has set? Or do we step outside the boundaries and try to fulfill it in an ungodly way? That's 
the question. What is it that we do when we have a stray thought come into our mind, when we have a desire pop up? I know one of the best things that you can do with it right away whenever you have something pop up that wants to be fulfilled outside the will of God is to submit that. Submit your mind, submit your thoughts and your desires to Christ. And let Him evaluate them because here's the trouble that we always run into when we deal with temptation. Okay? We are geniuses when it comes to justifying our sin. Right? We can, I can, real quick, real sudden, I can justify for you something and make it look like it's completely and totally harmless. But I'm as dumb as a brick whenever I'm trying to look for that way out. When God tries to provide me that way out, I can't see it. I mean, it's staying right in front of me, and I'm looking everywhere around it except that one thing. And the thing that I've got to deal with is me. I'm the one that has to be dealt with. I have to ask myself certain questions. Is there bait on this hook? And do I want it that bait so bad that I'm willing to ensnare myself, to be enticed and dragged away? Is that something I'm willing to do? Brothers and sisters, these are innocent things sometimes that will pop up. Sometimes you'll have, like I said, something like a neutral desire. For instance, you've not eaten all morning and you're hungry, right? It's good to eat until we eat too much and we become a glutton, right? When we see a new Corvette go down the road, it's, oh, that's nice, man. That would be a nice thing to have. There's nothing wrong with that until you go steal it. Or you start to deprive your family of things, trying to save up the money so that you can fulfill this one desire. Or if you just like football, it's on you if you root for North Carolina. It's not on anybody else. <laughs> now I'm off probation. How about that? Pastor Scott will be up here to preach for you next Sunday. <laughs> I was going to pick on Florida, but then he, anyway, we'll go a different direction. <laughs> But you see how the enemy tries to take something that could be innocent, that's legitimate, and try to turn it and try to twist it with this baited hook in order to grab you and to drag you down. James says in verse 15, after desire has conceived, now you become pregnant with this desire, the thing it gives birth to is sin. Right? Sin is disobedience to God. That's the most basic definition that we can give for what sin is, is, is disobedience. And he gives us this imagery of pregnancy. But the thing that we don't catch, since this was written in Greek and we only get to read it in English, is we have in this verse twice the word birth. When desire is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The interesting thing about that to me is that in the Greek, there's two different words for birth given. Now, for us, it's the same thing, birth and birth. But the way James puts it out here for us is that when sin, when desires can give, it gives birth to sin, that Greek word there is tikto. And that is basically just to give birth. But the second time, when sin's full grown and it gives birth to death, that is apokeo. And that is the performance of the final act of childbirth. That's the last push that causes the baby to come in and now have life. One is a general term. One is a very specific push. This is it. This is when life comes about. 
And I think what he's trying to illustrate is that the whole purpose of that evil desire is to bring death into our lives. Yet here we come day in and day out. I know for me it's true. Sometimes I like to treat my sin like it's a little pet. I'm sure you've heard the story about the man whose daughter says that she has a friend underneath the porch only one day for her to come around holding a rattlesnake or a cottonmouth or whatever it was, a poisonous, venomous snake saying, Daddy, Daddy, look, this is my friend. It's my best friend. And he says, sweetheart, that thing that you think is your friend will kill you. And that's how we deal with our sin. I have heard guys justify their sin and they will say, what I'm doing isn't hurting anyone. Nobody's being hurt by this. It's okay. They've judged within themselves what is good instead of going to the author of good, the only one who can be good, and asking him. And they say, nobody else is, is being hurt because of this. But brothers and sisters, there has only been one thing ever to disrupt the communion in the Trinity. And that thing was sin. The moment Jesus is on the cross and the sins of the world are placed on him, the word teaches us the Father looked away. This perfect communion is now broken. And Jesus cries out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin is the only thing that could cause a disruption because he had to bear our sin to pay the price. Yes. But that thing, the only thing that could cause that separation and communion is the thing that we play with, that we hold like the snake, saying, look, my friend, my friend, doesn't hurt nobody else. Nobody has to know. There's no damage. And the lie and the bait and the hook that's there that we don't catch is that that sin is always going to bring about death. It's always going to bring about death. And James gives us a process. We have an evil desire. We become enticed. And that causes us to commit sin, which always ends in death in one form or another. But God has a way of interrupting that process. And this is what I believe he has sent me here this morning to share with you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He is faithful, brothers and sisters, and he is just. That faithful means he's reliable. You can count on it. As my granddaddy used to say, you can take it to the bank. He's faithful. And he's just, that Greek word for just means to be put right with. The ability to declare innocent. He's just in calling us innocent when we confess our sins. And in the equations of our mind, that doesn't always make sense. And I think that we get stuck in this place where we come to God and we ask him to forgive and he casts it into the sea of forgetfulness, but we hold on to it and continue to judge ourselves. I think sometimes, especially in the church, we have a real hard time with God's justice. We have our own idea of justice, right? Um, it's kind of like, I don't, 
I don't mean to invoke this movie, per se, in the pulpit, but it, it gives a great illustration. There's this Harry Potter series, and Harry Potter gets in trouble for something, and he stays with his aunt and uncle who are always mean to him. And when he gets in trouble for something that he didn't do, his uncle says, Justice! He almost spits it out with it. So there's so much glee in him that this boy is being finally punished. And that's how we approach justice. It's rarely just whenever we want our justice, right? Because we think that justice has a lot to do with fairness. And justice doesn't have a lot to do with fairness. Did you know God is not always fair? But he is always just. He's always just. And I thank God that he's not fair. Because if it was fair that I got the punishment that I deserve, I'm in a lot of trouble. But because he's not fair, I get to get what Jesus has for me. Amen? I don't have what's always coming to me. I have what's coming to Jesus. That is God's justice. That's the purpose of this whole thing. That God comes in and says, yes, you're lost in your sin. Yes, you've messed up, but... If you confess, I will forgive that sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I'll close with this. John chapter 8, we have a story of a woman caught in adultery. And these people bring her to Jesus and they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery and according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned and put to death. And what does the word of God tell us that Jesus does? He, be, he bends down and begins to write in the earth. The hand of God dips down and writes something in the earth. Now, I've heard plenty of sermons, like I'm sure some of y'all have, have, about people making the assumptions of what he wrote. He wrote forgiven or mercy or someone even preached one time that he was writing down all the sins of the people in the crowd. But I would propose to you this morning that it's not important what he wrote or John would have told us what it was. The important thing is that he bent down to write in the dirt in the first place. Because the first instance we have in the Bible of the finger of God reaching down and writing in the earth is up on Mount Sinai. When the hand of God wrote this law that this woman is being accused of right now. And the last time we see the hand of God reach down to write down in the earth. He's looking at a woman who has broken that law. And how does he respond who God, John calls in John chapter 1 the very word of God the word is writing the word and he's now declaring the word let he without sin cast the first stone and he bends back down and he keeps writing the hand of God that wrote the law is still writing and John says that from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop their stones and they walk away. And when Jesus looks up, there's no one left but the woman. He said, woman, where are your accusers? She says, Lord, they've all left. He says, well then, <laughs> this is so huge right now that I think that it escapes us. 
neither do I condemn you. I do not accuse you. I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I have a question for you this morning. If you have struggled this morning to receive that forgiveness, if you would say, Pastor Chris, I have confessed it, I have admitted to it, but I don't feel righteous. I don't, I don't always feel clean. It keeps popping up over and over and over again on me. I don't feel right. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Just because you don't feel it don't mean it's not reality. Our feelings are not a good barometer of what reality is. The Word of God is the barometer of what reality is. And I've come here this morning to tell you that if you have had secret sins, if you will confess them to God, He will forgive you and break this cycle of death that keeps popping up in our lives. He's able to look at you and say, I do not condemn you. The only one qualified to judge this woman looks at her and says, I do not condemn you. So I want to have a little bit of prayer time this morning if if you're able, if you want to. If you would like to come down here and join me, I just want to say a prayer over you. If you have struggled to receive and accept this forgiveness, if you struggle with feeling dirty all the time, I have done the deal, Pastor Chris, but I still don't feel right. I want to pray for you this morning. So I just want to take just a moment with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you would like to come down and let me pray with you, I would love to pray with you to speak over you the words of Jesus that you are forgiven. We'll just take just a moment right now. So, Lord, this morning, I want to say thank you that because of you, because of that work that you did on Calvary, we can look up to you this morning knowing that you are God who is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of every sin and all unrighteousness. Father, I pray a blessing upon your people this morning. Lord, that this word would be carried with them as they leave here. Lord, that the way that they feel not be their reality, Father, but what you say is their reality. Lord, I bless them this morning to receive it, to walk in it, and to know it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. 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 Would you stand with me today? We enjoyed this word from Pastor Chris. I appreciate him coming and filling in the pulpit and, and uh, taking these past two weeks for me. Um, 
It's been a blessing for me to have you here, and I feels good to do ministry together again. It's been a minute. We've we've done some ministry in the past, a lot of ministry together, and uh, it was good to come back together and do ministry. And I'm honored to have him and to be here today. Again, I'm glad you're here today. You're not here by mistake. I don't believe that. I believe you're here on purpose. I believe this is a word for you. I believe this is a word for you to share with someone because you can have victory. You can have victory. You don't have to live defeated. You can have victory. So let's go through the week. Let's be the Jesus somebody needs, right? Like you've got to represent. You've got to be that person as you go into your workplaces and neighborhoods and families. And Thanksgiving's coming. Some of y'all are going to need to pray hard because you got to be with family, right? I know I'm telling the truth. It's okay. Me and Jamie can tell the truth. All y'all too holy for us, but me, Jamie, and Chris, we, right? So let's go and be that person people need. Amen? You may be the somebody someone needs. We love you. Thank you again. Come back next week. Got a word to share, ready to share it, and uh, hope to see you then. We love you. Be safe.